0: You are the great I am. You are the one before whom mountains and oceans and demons and believers all alike bow down. Because Lord, that is the only worthy. That is the only reasonable. That is the only capable response of something, someone in a presence as great and glorious as yours. And so, Father, I pray this morning that for every believer that our hearts would be bowed before you in a posture of reverence, bowed before you in a posture ready to receive your word into our lives, to have your word change our hearts. And we ask you, Lord, change them forever. We pray, God, for those this morning that are not yet set free in Christ Jesus, that today you would set them free. That today they would hold fast to the cross and let go of the world and come after you with all that they have. Lord, to quote the saint of this congregation, you are everything to us. Move as you see fit. Preach through an imperfect man to your word to imperfect people that your glory might be shown. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Perhaps nothing reveals the maturity of a person like freedom does. I would be willing to bet that if we were to go around all of you who have teenagers and college students and we were to ask you what it is that you are most concerned with, what it is that perhaps keeps you awake most often at night. I would bet that the most frequent response would be, who are they now that they're on their own? Who are they when they're not under mom and dad's watch care? Who are they when there's no longer a curfew? Who are they? Because all of us know it's one thing to know right and wrong, and it's another thing to apply it. It's one thing to know what you should do and shouldn't do, and it's another thing to have the maturity to actually live that way. Who are you when you can be whoever you want to be? That determines the maturity of the person. That determines who a person truly is. That shows you what a person is really made of. How do you spend your money when you can spend your money however you want to? How do you use your time when you can use your time in any way that you see fit? Who are you then? The gospel is clear. That Christ has set us free. That Christ has set us free from the bondage of the law. Christ has set us free from the need to fulfill the judgments of other people. Christ has set us free from having to keep up with the Joneses. Christ has set us free from the penalty and the power of our sin. Christ has set us free. So I ask us this morning... What is it we will do with the freedom that Christ has given? That shows our Christian maturity. What is it that we will use our Christian liberty to accomplish? What is it that we will use it for in the grand scheme? This morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right after Romans Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and stand with me as we read God's word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 23, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, even the first verse of chapter 11, because the chapter break is really kind of unfortunate there. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold without, sold in the market meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience." But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Paul's writing to to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth is a terribly corrupt a terribly divided, a terribly immature congregation. And so this being a congregation that Paul himself founded, he writes a letter on two different, on three, actually three different occasions that we're aware of, two of which are recorded in the inerrant canons of Scripture. And so throughout this, this first letter, what we have is we have Paul addressing the church at Corinth, addressing them that they might be made right, that they might reconcile some of their theological conflict, that they might reconcile some of the differences among the the people there, that they might be a light in a dark place living out the gospel faithfully in their lives. When we come to verse 23, we have what was apparently a common theological statement for the people at Corinth. This is the second time in Paul's first letter that he's addressed it. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but you can look there later. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 6, you'll see it's essentially this exact same word-for-word statement quoted again by Paul and again commentated upon by Paul. And the, statement, the theological statement of the church of Corinth was this, All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Paul repeats himself twice, all things are lawful. So apparently the church at Corinth would, the way that they interpreted the gospel is they interpreted that now that we have the grace of Christ, now that that Jesus has come and he has set us free from the law because he has himself fulfilled the law, now because we are dominated by a life of grace and living under an umbrella of grace, we can do whatever we want to do. Since Christ has fulfilled the law and Christ has set us free from the law, now All things are lawful for us. And so it becomes apparent that the church at Corinth was justifying all kinds of sexual immorality. Justifying division and unhealth in the church. Justifying a lack of personal service in the church. And how might they justify all of that? It doesn't matter what I do. I have grace. It doesn't matter how I live. I have grace. I am free to live as I see fit. I am free to live according to my own wisdom, my own knowledge, and to satisfy my own self-centered indulgences. And so we see Paul here in verse 23 writing a corrective. Writing a corrective. You can imagine that this is like the Christian cliche of the day. Like, I totally wish Paul, Aaron, I know you're with me on this, I totally wish Paul could, like, step in to the 21st century and, like, write some commentary on some of our Christian cliches. Like, that'd get real. You know what I'm saying? Like, he'd look at some of our, our little cute little sayings that we have, and he'd be like, oh my goodness, y'all. I mean, he would spend all his time writing us letters. And so we have Paul here commentating on one of the Christian cliches of the day. And so he, he quotes it, all things are permissible for me. And then he interjects his commentary, right? He says, but not all things are helpful. All things are, are lawful for me, but not all things build up. So, so Paul is here affirming that they are half right. They are half right. That on one hand, yes, Christ has set us free from the law. Yes, Christ has set us free to live our lives free of the law, free of the bondage of sin, free of the power of sin, that Christ has accomplished a great work for us, liberating us to live lives that are now free. And we should enjoy it, and we should love it, and we should savor it. But then on the other hand, just as the gospel sets us free, the gospel constrains us. That just as the gospel liberates us, it at the same time binds us. How does it bind us? It binds us to consider only that which is helpful. Only that which is to build up. That we are to use our Christian liberty, we are to use our Christian freedom in a way that is helpful and building up the church of God and the kingdom of God. See, building up was at the center of Paul's concern for the Corinthian church. He talks about it three different times. He talks about it in chapter 8. He talks about it here in chapter 10. And he's going to talk about it again in chapter 14. That is the very center of what Paul wanted for the church at Corinth. Is Paul wanted a church that was building one another up. He wanted a church that was building up the kingdom of God. Allowing the kingdom to come there in the corrupt city of Corinth. at This very important city of its day. And so he looks at them and says, yes. Yes, Christ has set you free. Yes, Christ has liberated you from the law. But Christ did not set you free so that you might live an unbridled life. Christ set you free that you might help your brothers and sisters. Christ set you free that you might build up his church. Brothers and sisters, Christian freedom is not an excuse for unbridled living. Let me say that one more time. Christian freedom is not an excuse for unbridled living. It is not an excuse and a a card to sin however we want to, to live however we want to, to justify our motives however we want to. It is a remarkably egregious thing to use the cross of Jesus Christ to justify your own self-centeredness and to satisfy your own Indulgences. Now, how does a Christian mature? How does a mature Christian use their Christian freedom? A mature Christian asks not, How, what am I free to do? No, a mature Christian instead asks Jesus, How can I use my freedom to build up your church? How can I use my freedom to bring you glory and honor with my life? This is not about self indulgent living. In fact, this is actually completely opposite of what Paul Living is saying. What does he say? He says in verse 24, following this up, let no one seek his own good. No, do what? Seek the good of your neighbor. See, when Paul is thinking about Christian liberty and Paul is thinking about Christian freedom, he is at the same time thinking about those at which the Christian life is aimed. He is thinking about those whom we are attempting to reach, those whom we are attempting to disciple, those whom we are attempting to to build up in the gospel. And so he says, how can this be about self-indulgence? How how can this be about you uh, being able to live an unbridled life? This life isn't about you at all. This life is about you seeking the good of your neighbor. This life is about you seeking the good of your Christian brother or your Christian sister. This life is about you seeking the good of those who don't yet have the gospel, that God's kingdom might be built on earth. And so over the rest of the passage, Paul is kind of, kind of wrestling with this tension and helping us work through this tension on, of on the one hand, yes, we are free and we are free indeed. And on the other hand, we are constrained. We are constrained to do that which is helpful, constrained to do that which builds up. And so Paul gives us these two hypothetical mills to help us wrap our brain around the tension. He gives us these two hypothetical meals for us to be able to kind of process what's going down so that we might be able to live faithfully out this tension in our own lives. So that we might on one hand enjoy our Christian freedom and on the other hand not abuse our Christian freedom but instead use it for the building of God's kingdom. The first of these meals is a meal that the believer is to have in their own home. It's a, it's a picture of a believer shopping at Publix or the, the, the market or whatever's going down in, in Corinth, and they're going and they're, they're going and they're looking at all the meat and they're looking at all the stuff that's there. And what does Paul say? Just buy it. Just buy it. Go over there and find you a perfectly marbled, seasoned Boston butt. Take that joker home and smoke the goodness out of it smother it in the best barbecue sauce you can make get you some baked potatoes and eat all of it to the glory of God right he says this is just go to the market you don't have to do an interrogation you don't have to do an investigation you don't have to hire a private eye you just see what's there say man that looks good to God's glory buy it bless the Lord and eat it in all of its wonder and majesty I mean one piece at a time like falling off the bone you know what I'm saying Now, why is it that Paul felt the need to say this? You see, in the early church's days, they were seen as a sect, almost like, you might think of it like a denomination of Judaism. And so everybody knew that the Jews had very strict food laws. And so in fact, for a Jew, they couldn't eat pork, they couldn't eat barbecue, they couldn't eat shrimp. They couldn't eat anything that be, had been sacrificed to an idol or to a, a pagan god. They couldn't eat anything that had passed through the hands of a pagan priest. Well, guess who was the primary meat market in Corinth? The pagan priests. The pagan priests would go and they would make sacrifices to pagan gods and they would take the meat from those sacrifices and they would go to the meat market and they would sell it there. Well, now you would imagine, a good Jewish boy is not eating that. A good Jewish boy is shutting down on that beef. Like, that is not organic, gluten-free. You know what I'm saying? Like, we are not chilling with that. That's not coming back to my house. We're not eating that on Fourth of July. And so what would happen is for a good Jewish person, they would have to go into the market, if they were to buy it there, and they, were to ha- they would have to investigate wherever the meal came from. They would have to make sure that it was perfectly kosher, that it had not been sacrificed as an idol, that it was not defiled in any way because if they ate defiled meat it would in turn defile them, making them unfit for worship. So what does Paul say? It's not gonna defile you. It's not gonna mess you up. Eat it! Enjoy it! Now I love the way Paul explains his reasoning behind this. He uses it, if you, you'll notice in verse 26, he says, For the earth is the Lord's, in the fullness thereof probably, in your Bible, I think in all the translations that I read this week, you'll notice that beginning with the word the earth, it's in quotation marks, right? You know why it's in quotation marks? Paul, being the astute Jewish scholar, was quoting directly from Psalm 24. And the reason that Paul is quoting directly from Psalm 24 is that every kosher dill pickle-eaten Pharisee would pray this blessing over their meal before they ate it. And so what that Jewish people would do is they would have their perfectly uh, Jewish meal, and they'd have their their bread, and they'd have their beef, and they'd have it all laid there. And then they would pray, Psalm 24, that all in the earth, or the earth is the Lord's and all therein, acknowledging that it was God who had given them such provision. It was God that had given them the sustenance for that day. And so what Paul does is brilliant. Paul takes the very blessing that the Pharisees pray. He takes the very prayer of the Jewish people and he uses it to show, wait a second, wasn't the idol meat God's before it belonged to the the idol's? Matter of fact, are the idols even real? Like, how can they do something to the meat? They don't even exist. Are, are pork chops not from God too? And so, what does he say? All of these things are good gifts from the from the Father. All of these things have been given to us by God. So, because Christ has set us free from the law, because Christ has enabled us now to not worry about the bondage, because Christ perfectly fulfilled the mosaic law and all of the all of the food customs that were and he has set us free from its bound it's it's binding nature eat it enjoy it enjoy the good food enjoy the good gifts of the lord see the freedom that paul is talking about is the freedom of the conscience the freedom of the conscience you know what it's like to have a conscience in bondage don't you You know what it's like when every 10 minutes you're having to have an argument with your conscience. Can I do this? Can I not do this? Is this okay? Is this not okay? Paul is saying you don't have to have that argument. You don't have to have that conversation. Christ has set free your conscience. You can have a clear conscience to enjoy the good gifts of God the Father. This is why, as Christians, we can have an iPhone. Are y'all with me? Can can we kind of talk about how this kind of comes into real life now? Apple stands behind some abhorrent things. Abhorrent things. things. But you can have an iPhone. You, you, You can go to Starbucks and you can buy yourself a $5 cup of bitter coffee. Starbucks stand behind some abhorrent things. Some things that are completely unchristian, some things that we utterly and totally oppose. And yet, you can drink that cup of coffee to the glory of God while talking on your iPhone to the glory of God. You can wear gap blue jeans. You can go and hang out at Disney World and just raise your hands going down Splash Mountain to the glory of God. All of these companies standing for things that utterly oppose us as Christians, right? worldviews that are completely and totally different than ours. But our conscience is not bound. Why? Those people are all just pagan priests selling idol meat at the market. Those things aren't theirs. Those things were not first belonged to, to Steve Jobs or whomever else. No, those things are the Lord's. The Lord has given them the ingenuity. The Lord has given us the resources. The Lord has provided those things. So rather than wasting Christian energy, would it it not be a better usage of our Christian energy to reclaim the goods of God and the gifts of God for the glory of God rather than boycotting them to no effect? What if instead of having an argument with our conscience every time we buy a pair of blue jeans or plan a vacation, what if we said, I'm going to take this back for the glory of God. I'm going to enjoy them and worship. I'm going to use them to spread the gospel and the good news however it is that I see fit. The church shouldn't be as much about what we're against as what we're reclaiming for the glory of God. Let me give you an example. Skype Is owned by Microsoft. Microsoft matches employee gifts to Planned Parenthood. Abhorrent, abhorrent. Microsoft supports the Supreme Court decision to redefine marriage. Abhorrent. But you know what? The Lord has given us Skype. It's not. It doesn't belong to Bill Gates. It doesn't belong to Microsoft. Belongs to the Lord. And right now, we're putting into place a plan to use Skype to train pastors in Swaziland to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's reclaim this stuff, brothers and sisters. Let's reclaim the iPhone for the glory of God. Let's enjoy them to the glory of God. Our conscience has been set free to go into the midst of the market, to look the pagan priest in the eye, to take his. Idle meat and to use it to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth that's what we've been set free to do this morning I just wonder for just a second just taking an aside here for a second I wonder if there are some of you that are living in bondage I wonder if there are some of you that don't know what freedom I'm talking about I wonder if there are some of you that are still trying to measure up and do good enough and work hard enough to earn God's approval I wonder if some of you are trying to keep the Ten Commandments more faithfully to live a moral life, a more moral life, only to fail and to fail again. Brothers and sisters, Christ came to liberate you from that. Christ came to set you free from that. This morning, would you come to him? Would you come to him? That you may no longer be bound. So the first hypothetical meal we see is the Christian. It's him going to the market and buying the meat to take it to his home and cook it and enjoy it for God's glory. The second hypothetical meal we see is a meal in which a Christian, a believer, is invited to go to the home of an unbeliever. Probably a dinner party of an unbeliever. Now some of y'all already getting nervous. Wait a second. We're going to be telling our people, are be going over there eating with the unbelievers, eating at the dinner parties of the unbelievers? Yes, that's what we're telling you. Because it's fascinating that Paul assumes this of the Christians, right? He assumes it. He assumes when he's talking to the church at Corinth that they're going to want to have friends that are not believers. Friends that most likely worship fake gods, pagan gods. Gods that dishonor the Lord. Gods that stand for abhorrent truths. So his assumption is, is that these Christians... Living their lives, because again, as he said in 1 Corinthians 5, he's not wanting them to leave the world, but to live among the world, right? That as they live among the worlds, they're going to be friend to them. As their salt in the midst of darkness, that some of the are as their light in the midst of darkness, that some of the dark people are gonna see their light and want to be with them. And so he says, prepare yourself. If if you're disposed to go, your translation might say, if you want to go, go. Go and and go to their party and enjoy yourself and have a good time. Again, he says, your conscience is not bound. Christ set you free from that. Christ set you free. Christ died on the cross. Christ raised from the grave so that you might be a friend of sinners as he was. So he says, go. Go. Enjoy yourself. And when you go, eat whatever is before you. You see, as he's given us the second hypothetical meal, he gives us two principles as we dine with sinners. Two principles for what it should look like in our lives when we go into the home of an unbeliever or to the party of an unbeliever in the presence of unbelievers. You know what the first principle is? Be a good friend. Be a good friend. That whatever it is that they put in front of you, Just eat it. Just eat it. Now, I have this really close friend. I'm not going to give out his name, Aaron. And y'all, he's picky. This brother is like picky, picky. All right? Let me just help you out for a second. Aaron will eat at your home, he will have part to the glory of God. Am I with you? Are you with me? But he does not like fruit, he does not like vegetables, he does not like salad. All right, what what else can I get for you? Okay, (laughs) fried chicken, tacos and french fries. He's big on tacos and french fries. We go to this place over here all the time bagging some tacos and french fries. But you know, I have been with him in settings in which we're with people that we don't know well. In a a variety of different circumstances, and they will have a meal there. And you know what he'll eat? Whatever's in front of him. Why? That's our Christian responsibility. It is our Christian responsibility to be good friends and good neighbors every opportunity that we get, especially in the context that Paul is describing, especially in the context when the person is not known to the gospel, is not set free in Christ Jesus. So when we go to their house, when they lay a meal before us, we don't to say, now, where did this come from? Is this gluten-free? I mean, if that's your thing, I, I guess I shouldn't criticize that one, but, like, did you offer this up to Artemis? Did you? You should ask that just for fun, just for fun. Has this been offered up in the temple of Artemis? No, whatever they put in front of you to eat, eat it. Whatever they put in front of you to drink, drink it. Whatever the dessert is, eat that pie, Like eat that, right? To the glory of God. You don't have to be over in the corner the whole time having a conversation with your conscience. Is this okay? Is this not okay? Christ set you free. It is okay. Now, what does that look like in everyday life for us? Not a lot of us hanging out with people eating meat sacrificed to Artemis. It means that whenever you go over to a a non-Christian friend's house, that it should be your goal to not be abrasive. It should be your goal to not be offensive. That it should be your goal that people aren't worried about how easily offended you might be or how they must talk differently or or act differently or cook different things or behave in different ways. It means that when you, a Christian, who is aiming to reach this person with the gospel, should not go over to their house and make them feel like they're walking on eggshells the whole time that you're there. Now, what what would Paul tell us? He would say, don't be offended. Don't be offended. Just eat what is in front of you. The people that he's talking about, or talking to, would have been a much more comfortable with the Jewish diet. They would have been much more comfortable with the laws of the Old Testament. They would have been much more comfortable with some good old-fashioned kosher beef. But Paul says, if they put a pork chop there, to the glory of God, eat the pork chop. Don't be offended. Don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. See, for too long, Christians have required their non-Christian friends to change their behavior around them. For too long, we've went to the house of a pagan and expected a pagan to embrace our Christian morality and our Christian ethic. What sense does that make, brothers and sisters? What sense does that make? And we wonder why we don't get invited back. We wonder why they don't want us around. Can I just tell you one of the most difficult things about being a pastor is because, because we live in the Bible, Well, everybody locks up the second that they find out. Like I'm not ashamed at all that I pastor Iron City Baptist Church. I'm not ashamed at all that I'm a, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But sometimes I'm, I'm reticent to tell people. It is not uncommon for me to be playing golf with somebody. And, hey, man, they have a, you can tell they have a different worldview from mine. Amen? But we're having a good time, and we're telling jokes, and then all, every time, so what do you do? I preach. Okay. Well, they start pouring out their drinks and putting out their cigars, and next thing I know, hey, man, I know this guy over on number seven. Is it okay if I head over there and hang out with him for a while? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because for too long, Christians have a reputation of making people walk on eggshells because we are too thin-skinned and we are too easily offended, assuming that non-Christians should have our values when they don't have our Jesus. Go to their house. Be a good friend. Enjoy yourself. Be a good neighbor in their home and let them be, enjoy being around you, and you might get invited back. And the more you go deep with them the more life will happen and the more difficult circumstances will take place and you will have an opportunity to speak the hope of the gospel into their lives. Iron City, the church that will have the greatest influence in this community is the church whose members are the best neighbors and the best friends to the unbeliever. Let us be those neighbors. Let us be those friends. The second principle that he gives us as we prepare to dine with sinners is to not tarnish our Christian witness. So, other, so on one hand, he says, Do be a good friend. On the other hand, he says, Don't compromise your Christian witness. We see this when we get into verse 28. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So this is the first time in all of our texts that Paul has told us not to do something. Have you noticed that? Christianity is a lot more about what you get to do than what you don't get to do. The gospel is a lot more about what you're free to do than what you're constrained not to do. Christianity is about offense, not defense. We've talked about that before, right? It's about living, not dying. It's about being set free, not in bondage. But we come to verse 28, Paul says, yes, we're in the tension, right? On one hand, everything is lawful, everything is permissible. But on the other other hand, we are constrained to that which builds up. We are constrained to that which helps. And so when we get to verse 28, in the first part of 29, he's focusing on this building up part. He's focusing on building up the church, focused on building up the kingdom of God. And so what does he say? He says, don't do anything that might cause people to question your Christian witness. Now, the circumstance changed how? The meat was the same. Both of them, from the beginning, were idle meat. That's the assumption, right? That both of them were meat that were offered up to some pagan god somewhere of some type and some pagan temple and bought from some pagan priest at the market. Both of them assumed that. But on, in verse 27, he says, go ahead, eat it. Verse 28, he says, don't eat it. Why? What changed? What changed is, is that the unbeliever pointed it out. That the unbeliever says, wait a second, you're not supposed to be eating this stuff, are you? Wait a second, who... <laughs> You follow after, aren't you supposed to only eat beef? Aren't you only supposed to eat things that are approved by the rabbi? Aren't you only supposed to do things like that? You see, the unbeliever in that case has made it a matter of his own conscience. The unbeliever in that case has pointed out that he is intending to eat this meal in some form of worship, and some form of allegiance to his pagan God. And so the reason that the Christian is not to eat that meal, the reason the Christian at that time is to abstain and is not allowed to indulge in their Christian liberty or to enjoy their Christian liberty is a better way to say it, is because at that point it becomes a question of whether or not their allegiance is to Jesus. You see, if the Christian eats the meal in that circumstance, the man having pointed out, having made a point that this food was offered to such and such, And the Christian says, well, that doesn't matter. I'll eat it anyway. That man has no concept of Christian liberty. That man has no theological uh, precedent to understand, to process that through the, the lens of Christian liberty. Instead, what does he see? Well, I guess with their God, my God's allowed too. I guess that maybe uh, he says he's devoted to Jesus, but I guess with that he can be devoted to mine too. I guess, it's not, I guess Jesus doesn't really demand very much. I guess Jesus just really doesn't really care what his followers do or doesn't really care what his believers do. So this isn't about your conscience, it's about their conscience. Again, we're not pursuing our own good, right? We're, can, we're pursuing, we're seeking the good of our neighbors, seeking the good of others, as verse 24 says. So in that instance, Our Christian witness is at stake. Our ability to share the gospel and to speak the exclusivity of the gospel and to speak the goodness of the gospel is at risk. And so in our lives, when we go to a party or we're hanging out in a place or we're eating a meal, how is it that we can apply this? I think we can ask ourselves two questions. And admittedly, this looks different in Calhoun County than it looks in Boston, Mass, than it looks in Los Angeles, than it looks in, in Germany or in South Africa. All, so much of this is cultural. So much of this is, is, uh, is, is contextual. But all of these things are non-essentials anyway. So that's okay. So you come to it, you're, you're in a place. How do I know if I can do this? How can I know if I can partake of this? How can I know if I'm allowed to enjoy this? If I'm a Christian, question number one, if by me enjoying this, partaking this, doing this, being here, is it going to in any way cause me to appear to affirm something that is going to bring shame upon the gospel? If someone were to walk by, if someone were to ask the question, if someone were to, to peg me, as hopefully they should, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, will they see that as an unbeliever and be less drawn to the gospel because of it? Will they see it and see me as though I am affirming something that it appears in all sincerity that I oppose every other day of the week? The second question that we should ask is first, so on one hand, does it bring shame upon the gospel? And on the second hand, it is whether or not it, skip my mind for a second here. Shame upon the gospel on one hand, and on the other hand, whether or not it will cause this person to question my allegiance to Jesus. I apologize. So when someone sees me do this, when someone hears me do this, when someone knows that I do this, will they see me in that place? Will they see me with that meal? Will they see me doing that, having that behavior, and at that time question whether or not my life is fully devoted to Jesus? Because see, the question is whether or not we're going to be a stumbling block. The question is whether or not we're going to be an obstacle, a gospel obstacle to other people. Paul asks the question rhetorically, doesn't he? As you go into verses 29 and 30, Paul asks the question rhetorically. He says, why do I have to give up my freedom? Why do I have to give up my freedom? Then he answers himself in verses 31 through 33. I give up my freedom because my life is not my own. I give up my freedom because my freedom is subservient to the glory of God. I give up my freedom because the end to which I am aimed is not my liberty. The end to which I aim is not my indulgence. The end to which I am aimed is that my life would bring glory and honor and pleasure and exaltation to the glorious name of my God. And so he says, I endeavor to bring no offense to anyone whether they're Greek or they're Jew or they're a a less mature Christian, I constrain myself, I bind myself in my Christian liberty. I forfeit my freedom that they might one day be set free. I forfeit my freedom, I, uh, I forfeit what I have so that one day they might have it too. See, the question that's facing Paul and the question that's facing us is whether or not at the end of the day what we do is for God's glory or not. If the end at which our lives are aimed are the glory of God or not the glory of God. You see, the way these two commandments fit together, we've talked about that over and over and over. The way the two great commandments fit together is that they are inextricably locked. That you cannot say I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and at the same time not love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot say that I'm going to love my neighbor as myself if I am not first devoted all out to God. And so what Paul is saying is that because my life is for God's glory that I will be constrained in the gospel. I will be constrained in my freedom so that I will not be a stumbling block to the unbelievers. So that I will not be a stumbling block to less mature Christian brothers and sisters. See, the example that he's following is the example of Jesus. Nobody has willfully or willingly given up more freedom than Jesus has. In Matthew chapter 26, Peter's cut off the ear of a soldier. They've come to arrest Jesus. The disciples are frenzied. They're wondering what's going to happen, what's going to go down, what's, what's the issue here? Jesus looks at him and he rebukes him. And what does he say? At any point, could I not call down more than 12 legions of angels? At any point, could I not call down more than 12 legions of angels to come and to evaporate all of my, all of my enemies and to deliver me from the cross and to rescue me from the cross? But no, what did Christ do? Christ forfeited his own freedom. Christ forfeited his own liberty that he might go to the cross and die for others seeking not his own good but the good of other people. Iron City, this is what I'm calling us to. I'm calling us in the midst of our freedom to with our freedom choose slavery. Paul says in verse 11 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And be One chapter before this one, in chapter 9, you know what Paul said? I become a servant to all men. I will do all things so that by all means possible, some might be saved. That I enslave myself. That other people might be set free. There were a group of Christians in the 18th century, known as the Moravian Christians by history. They, began, they were incredibly pious people and devoted people, committed to the gospel and committed to the gospel's sake. And they are probably the pioneers of modern missions. They, were, they became particularly convicted about what was happening in the West Indies, especially on the island of St. Thomas as, they were, as African slaves were being shipped by the British Empire to the, to the Western Isles. They were working the sugar cane fields and there was essentially no way for them to know the gospel. No way for them to hear the gospel. And so what the Moravians became convinced to do is what they became convinced is they sold themselves into slavery to the plantation owner that owned St. Thomas Island. And so they loaded up on the ship, not as free men, but as willful slaves. And as all of their church family was gathered around, as their moms and dads, these being two young teenage boys, as their moms and dads were gathered around, tears falling from their eyes, friends weeping over their departure, knowing that never again will they return back home. Said that the two boys shouted back, Shall not Christ receive the full glory of his suffering? Brothers and sisters, join them join them join them in your freedom with your liberty choose slavery to christ choose slavery to other men that by all means possible some might be saved let me pray for us